In a world where poverty, destitution, and misery are all too rampant, what is the best way to help? Are philanthropic aid agencies, charities, and non-governmental organizations part of the solution, or are they part of the problem? Is there a fundamental conflict between charity and solidarity with the Global South? Can corporations be compelled by government or by consumer demand to be socially responsible on the world stage? In this hour, we will get perspectives from Roxanne Joyal, who represents the social enterprise me to we Nick Berry Shaw, co-author of the book Paved with Good Intentions, and Eve Engler, author and a leading critic of Canadian foreign policy. On today's program, Charity versus Solidarity, Do Development NGOs Do More Harm Than Good? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of July 25th, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Previous articles discussed her 2003 abduction, detention, torture, false charges, prosecution, and conviction. On July 20th, the Pakistan Observer headlined, quote, U.S. agrees on Afiyaz Siddiqui's extradition, saying, quote, In a major breakthrough, the U.S. has offered Pakistan to sign prisoner swap agreement for the extradition of Dr. Afia Siddiqui, after which the Pakistani scientist will be allowed to serve the remaining part of her imprisonment in homeland, unquote. She was a normal woman living a normal life. She's been treated unconscionably. She's victimized by U.S. brutality. That's from an article by Stephen Lendman entitled Political Prisoner in America, Afia Siddiqui, Victim of U.S. Injustice, posted July 22nd. The Department of Justice told a federal court this week that the NSA's spying cannot be challenged in a court of law. The executive branch also presents secret evidence in many court cases, sometimes even hiding the evidence from the judge who is deciding the case. Daniel Ellsberg notes that even the Founding Fathers didn't have to deal with a government claiming that it could indefinitely detain Americans, even on American soil. After Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, journalist Naomi Wolf, Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg and others sued the government to enjoin the NDAA's allowance of the indefinite detention of Americans. The judge asked the government attorneys five times whether journalists like Hedges could be indefinitely detained simply for interviewing and then writing about bad guys. The government refused to promise that journalists like Hedges won't be thrown in a dungeon for the rest of their lives without any right to talk to a judge. 
That's from an article by Washington's blog entitled, America No Longer Has a Functioning Judicial System, posted July 22nd. Rather than expanding the money supply, quantitative easing has actually caused it to shrink by sucking up the collateral needed by the shadow banking system to create credit. The failure of QE has prompted the Bank for International Settlements to urge the Fed to shirk its mandate to pursue full employment, but the sort of QE that could fulfill that mandate has not yet been tried. It is a neoliberal maxim that the market is always right. But as World Bank, as former World Bank chief economist Joseph Stiglitz dem- demonstrated, the maxim only holds when the market has perfect information. The market may be misinformed about QE, what it achieves and what harm it can do. Getting more purchasing power into the economy could work, but QE, as currently practiced, may be having the opposite effect. That's from an article by Ellen Brown entitled Collateral Damage, QE3 and the Shadow Banking System, posted July 23rd, originally posted in the blog Web of Debt. Some treaties are treated more like helpful suggestions than the supreme law of the land. That would not be the case with the TPP. A corporation could take the U.S. government or other nations' governments to court, or rather a special tribunal, and overturn their laws. A bunch of corporate lawyers would make their case to a tribunal made up of three corporate lawyers taking a break from themselves arguing such cases in order to rule on some of them. So, if the United States has a health care policy or an environmental or workplace policy or a banking or internet or other public policy that a few corporate lawyers can convince three other corporate lawyers fails to comply with the TPP, The policy will be overturned, the law rewritten, and compensation ordered to be paid by the public treasury to the corporations that suffered from having to provide health care or from having to refrain from poisoning a river or whatever. That's from an article by David Swanson entitled, Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, The Terrible Plutocratic Plan, posted July 22nd, originally posted at warisacrime.org. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Um, the um, organization Me to We bills itself as an innovative social enterprise. Uh, it is inspired by the need to put into action positive social change and is in active in countries around the world. Roxanne Joyal is the co-CEO of Me to We. She was identified in 2000 by McLean's magazine as one of the top 100 people to watch for in the millennium. She's been involved in international development work from an early age, spending six months in the Klong Toi slum of Bangkok, Thailand, where she cared for mothers and children afflicted with AIDS. She graduated with distinction from Stanford after completing a degree in international relations. Upon winning a coveted Rhodes Scholarship, she went on to complete a law degree at Oxford University with an emphasis on family and labor law. Roxanne completed her legal training by clerking 
for the Supreme Court of Canada in 2005, and in 2012, Roxanne received an honorary doctorate from the University of Nipissing in recognition of her innovative work in education and human rights. And uh, she joins us now from Nairobi, Kenya. So, Roxanne Joyal, thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be with you. Thank you. Okay, now... um, can you maybe introduce your um, your organization to us, uh, Me Too We? Maybe you should say uh, a little bit about uh, what uh, they actually do and, and what perhaps distinguishes it from other NGOs. Sure. Well, actually, Me Too We is a social enterprise, so we, we actually distinguish ourselves a little bit um, from, from NGOs because at the end of the day, uh, we are a social enterprise. Uh, we are a business uh, with a conscience. And so... Uh, what we do is we provide innovative, uh, socially responsible uh, products and services uh, to the market, uh, which all make a difference in the world. Uh, and so that could be through international volunteer trips. That could be through accessories and apparel that are ethically manufactured, uh, that make a difference in the lives of the recipients who make them. Um, and it can also be through uh, speakers who motivate and books that inspire. Uh, in the totality, what we try to do at Me We is to provide people an outlet. Uh, if they want to make a choice uh, in the consumer landscape, uh, they can do one uh, that, uh, one, is socially responsible, and two, that makes a difference. And the way in which we do that uh, is that Meet We has a charitable partner uh, called Free the Children, and Meet We donates 50% of its net, net profits back to Free the Children, and we donate the other, we, we reinvest the other 50% into the enterprise. And so we actually pride ourselves uh, that we are, in fact, a business, but literally in our mandate, in our charter, we give back 50% to free the children. And so uh, by running Me to We, uh, I feel very privileged that I'm able to, to run a business and to run a business in accordance with, um, you know, great uh, commerce principles, such as great marketing, um, such as hiring just wonderful dynamic staff. And our success is premised on the quality of, of, of the experiences and the products that we offer to the consumer place. Uh, and this is also a great way to offer a great, innovative, socially responsible product while making a difference in that purchasing of that product and by and then indirectly in also supporting our charitable partner free the children okay so free the children being the the, the charitable uh, i guess philanthropic component of your enterprise or exactly yes exactly no that's exactly right and so what happens in the canadian landscape is that uh canadian charities of course um you know are granted that uh tax exempt status uh from 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 the federal government and so uh, what happens is that through, through legislation, which is, is rightfully so, um, Canadian charities can only generate a certain amount of revenue from, from sales rather than donations. And so, in fact, um, charities can only fundraise a certain portion uh, of their income uh, from, um, from, from, selling, from selling goods, so to say, which is very different from what the landscape might be uh, in the United Kingdom, where many of uh, these like landmark uh, charities such as Oxfam or Save the Children, they all have um, shops on the high streets um, that literally generate revenue and that go back into the charitable coffers. But this cannot be done in Canada. And so what I've been able to do along with Mark and Craig Kielberger, who are the founders of Free the Children, uh, through very uh, you know stringent legal means, uh, again, uh, both Mark and I are, are, are lawyers uh, and, and Craig uh, you know, is a graduate from the Kellogg uh, School of Business uh, with a very strict uh, you know, board of governance We've been able to create a model whereby uh, we as a social enterprise that exists uh, to put out a pro- you know, socially responsible product in the marketplace, but at the same time uh, support our charitable partner, Free the Children. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I've noticed certainly from your website that uh, there's a lot of um, emphasis on uh, 
as you've just indicated, things like ethical consumption and uh, or ethical consumerism, and uh, you're making sure uh, that uh, you, know, you, you the, the impacts, uh, social and environmental impacts, have been um, mitigated. Um, could, could you maybe just expand a little bit on what you mean by corporate social responsibility and, and how you sure. are able to sort of you know, enforce it, if that's the word for it? Yeah, I mean, I think corporate social responsibility is a, is a sliding scale, and uh, this is a topic that I'm actually very passionate about. Um, I think the days of checkbook philanthropy uh, from a business perspective are over, um, where charities could expect, um, you know, substantive checks from businesses without any uh, accountability from a charity's perspective um, in terms of how those funds were spent. I think businesses today who are, in fact, donors to charities uh, are looking for a greater amount of transparency and accountability as to how uh, those funds are being used, and also how businesses can also uh, get their employees involved in this. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, if if a business uh, is uh, you know making a difference uh, in the community, whether it be locally or globally, um, that should be celebrated, and it actually should uh, should reflect uh, should be reflected in 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 the fabric uh, of, of the company itself. So I do think it's a bit of a sliding scale today. So I think we can see, uh, you know, companies who are involved, uh, you know, in, in a very, uh, perhaps in a bit of a smaller way. And uh, we really welcome that, uh, whether it be um, providing uh, employees with the opportunity to have one day off of work without taking a holiday day in order to be able to volunteer somewhere, uh, whether it be we've, we've worked with, uh, again, uh, both me and we we've worked with uh, corporate partners who, uh, help to pay a part of an international volunteer trip to be able to go overseas and, and to make a difference, whether it be companies uh, who, uh, again, give their employees time off to be able to volunteer uh, on Free the Children activities, which are, are held domestically, like our wee days across across Canada and in the U.S. Um, I think I really do think it's a, it's a sliding scale, and I would say Wee's commitment, uh, which is a 50% back, um, is, is very substantive, uh, and uh, what we hope to do through this is 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 is, is do a new kind of business uh, where the bottom line, you know, it's a triple bottom line where you you know is it, is it good for the world, is it good for the consumer, and and you know is it a good product? Um, I, I just feel that um, I just think we should really try to move towards this kind of model where um, you know success within a, a business perspective is not predicated on. Um, you know, exploiting someone in the supply chain. I'm very much uh, interested in exploring the uh, the dichotomy of of the charity model versus the solidarity model. And I don't know, maybe okay. for you that's a, a false dichotomy, or but or or maybe not. But uh, I, I know that uh, many of our listeners have, have an understanding that uh, much of the the poverty and inequality that we're seeing in the world is rooted in um, a global economic framework that's been uh, underwritten by the Bretton Woods institutions, IMF, <clears throat> WTO, World Bank, uh, structural adjustment programs, and so on. And uh, I, I do. I mean, does your does your organization like you fundamentally confront those uh, the, those economic um, uh, elements, or is it completely parallel? Well, no. I mean, that's uh, listen. I mean, clearly. Um, some of the larger uh, international uh, economic frameworks that have been devised in the past um, may not have worked as well as we would have hoped. I mean, at the end of the day, these are theories that were put into practice, and I don't know if the outcomes were 
you know, as spectacular as one may have hoped. I did have an opportunity to work uh, with the World Bank in Zimbabwe uh, some years ago, back in 1998. And I mean, I can I can certainly say that, uh, you know, there are many people who disagree with the policies that have come from the World Bank. I mean, you certainly are part of, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions and, 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 that, and that global framework. I can say that the people working within these institutions were very well-intentioned individuals. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, it is very clear that some of these policies just did not uh, create the prosperity that they had hoped. Um, so I have taken, taken a different tact with my, with my career, um, and, and that has been through this, this idea of social enterprise. And it's not just about social enterprise in North America, because at the end of the day, although the product of the experience uh, that we provide to our consumer uh, does take place in, in North America, um, again, the, the the whole supply chain actually takes place in developing countries. Uh, and so we have an opportunity here uh, as a grassroots player uh, to stimulate the local economy. And I think this is where success is at. And I think when you're talking about the solidarity model, which is, you know, that grassroots development, um, I think, again, you know, from the media perspective, uh, we are a part of that because, you know, by providing, uh, for example, you know, more the more than 600 women, Maasai women, who we employ full-time uh, with a fair wage, uh, through our Mutui Artisans program, which uh, provides um, marketplace with, you know, sustainably produced and, and, and produced jewelry that is, again, done through fair trade conditions and in good working conditions. Uh, these mothers are able to use that income, to leverage that income, uh, to send their kids to school or to put a tin roof uh, on their home or to be able to feed their children. So, um, and, and again, even from a charitable perspective, again, uh, with, with free to children, I should say, um, again, they have very much employed a uh, grassroots approach to their development, working in partnership with the communities and identifying with each community uh, what the needs are there. And Free the Children has a, a five-prong approach uh, through which they do this. And every time they enter into a partnership as a welcome partner uh, into the community, they look at education, uh, they look at um, water and sanitation, they look at alternative income, and then they also look at food security. And that's implemented in each village where they go uh, in the order in which it should be implemented and uh, to a different degree based on uh, on need. So I am I actually am a proponent of this of the solidarity model. And I think, um, but in my humble opinion, it can be done philanthropically, but it can also be done uh, through through commerce. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I think that uh, like what uh, some people when they talk about solidarity, they uh, that that must you know by necessity incorporate. Uh, you know, resistance to some of those, uh, you know, structural adjustment policies that have, uh, you know, shaped, you know, I mean, I know to a certain extent you have, uh, you know, governments that have been, um, well, you know, I mean, throughout the global south that have been subjected to structural adjustment programs. And, uh, um, I know that the, um, example, you know, when you look at Haiti, uh, when you did have, uh, a democratically elected, uh, leader in, um, Aristide, uh, he had been overthrown in a, a coup that was sponsored by uh, uh, outside forces, including the United States and Canada, and uh, that, and, and he was one of the people that was, you know, problematic from their perspective because he was resisting those structural adjustment programs, and so he was when he was overthrown, uh, that that um, you know caused problems for the domestic uh, situation, and then. You have within Haiti all of these um, NGOs that have come in, uh, you know, perhaps earnestly to help. But the concern is that, uh, you know, when when you don't, when, when you're not supporting uh, uh, government entities that are trying to protect against those international forces, that uh, the 
the NGOs may not uh, be an the, the or you know, charitable organizations going in may not be very um, effective um, way of showing solidarity. Do you do you not see that there is some sense in which a uh, the, the NGO by by not uh, not only uh, you know having you know, aid go in, even in partnership with local communities, but also recognizing that there are these, you know, nodes of resistance to, uh, you know, these economic programs that, that need to be fostered as well. And uh, is, is that something that uh, uh, your you or, or your organization uh, addresses in any way? Well, we've largely kept ourselves out of that, out of that phrase, so to say, and we really focus on Delivering tangible results to people on the ground, and uh, and, and at the end of the day, uh, whether it be through a structural adjustment program or whether it's, whether it be through you know democratically electing leadership in a country, people are looking for change, and people are looking uh, people you know who find themselves in, in difficult economic socioeconomic circumstances are looking for help, and so that's what we do uh, through our work with Free the Children is is deliver that tangible help uh, in partnership with the communities, and I, I can't emphasize that. Enough, and you know I can't speak on behalf of all aid organizations because you know um, areas that go through these times of difficulty go through different phases, uh, you know. And so Mid Saint Francois and the Red Cross have done incredible work, you know, in times of disaster when you know aid is is required. I mean, when when clean water, you know, to to, to prevent uh, you know dysentery or you know some of these severe uh, diseases that break out at times of of, of, of strife. Um, they need to deliver aid, but what we focus on is working with people on the ground uh, to be able to find solutions that help them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and to make a difference. And uh, in, in most of the countries where we operate, we actually do that in conjunction with the local governments. I mean, we don't operate, you know, outside of the governmental sphere, but we do work with local representatives in partnership with them so that they're also able to commit resources and energy uh, to, to, to our programs, whether that be financially, if they can afford some of that, or uh, whether that be through uh, through support, um, we do feel that it's important to consult all the different stakeholders in the community. And clearly, you know, governments have a role to play in there. But we we typically on on the free the children side will keep our our development work um, more on, on on a local level. Uh, we're we're just uh, you know and doing that in 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 partnership and through consultation with with uh, stakeholders on the ground. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we are accountable to the people who we serve. And again, those are people whom we serve in, in these different communities and we're also accountable to our donors uh, around the world and so we feel that's been our best approach in order to be able to uh, affect you know tangible change we've seen a lot of business practices uh, around the world that are fundamentally exploitive you know like, like damming hydro damming uh, taking place in, in the global south that uh, disrupts indigenous communities uh, mining projects uh, and and I'm wondering if the the, the ethical uh, business model that you seem to be pursuing is um, is adequately uh, countering these uh, larger forces. I mean, we've got this you know global financial network uh, in which you've got companies invested in uh, companies that are uh, you know doing these uh, awful things. Is that a point you can address at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, I, I, in my humble opinion, uh, where we can see change in terms of corporate social responsibility. Uh, you know, within the, any given business is really driven by consumer demand. Uh, that is that is my philosophy. And if we look at uh, the anti-child labor movement that took place in the early 90s, I mean, it's, it wasn't so long ago uh, that we had children embellishing um, uh, apparel uh, for companies that we all see on our, some of our major shopping streets and in our, in our malls. 
and it was because of that that public outcry and because of that um you know the consumer demand the consumer demanded that uh, we change the way that that be done uh, that we are seeing that you know kids are no longer uh, you know there is a fraction of of uh, you know, are, are there, and I can't say that this has been abolished altogether because I'm sure there's somewhere in the world that there might be a young person employed uh, in an exploitative fashion within the apparel industry. But it's gotten much better. And, uh, you know, we even look at what happened in Bangladesh recently. I think we're going to be seeing much more change around this, but it really is about consumer demand. And I think when we look at, uh, you know, mining, I mean, these are just very big sectors. But if we even look at, um, again, anything within uh, from a retail perspective, um, a lot of this is driven by, um, by demands uh, from the consumer. And uh, I do think, I, I am actually a, promote, a, a proponent of, of change from within. Uh, I do think a lot of these large companies, uh, you know, within uh, the mining sector, et cetera, they do have an important uh, role to play uh, in these countries uh, where they are located. Um, and I, I do think that the needle is, the, the, the dial is moving on um, in certain places. I can't say globally, but I, I do think that we do have leadership, especially where these companies are located in, in, in countries such as Canada. Uh, where there is a code of ethics that they have to follow and that improvements need to be made. Uh, but I do think that pressure needs to come from the consumer. I do think that pressure needs to come from government, especially uh, Canadian legislation. Uh, and I do think um, this is a gradual thing. I don't think we'll see it overnight, but I think we need to keep pressing on. And uh, I think, uh, you know, change, is, uh, change, change needs to come at an incremental, uh, an incremental pace. Hmm. So, you, you, well, is it possible, though, that the uh, the pressure from ethical consumerism and, and consumer demand, because I, I noticed that I, I don't see a shortage of people going to places like Walmart, for example. Um, right. And, you know, I, I'm wondering if, you know, to the extent that ethical consumerism is having an impact, it, it might just be um, leading to something called greenwashing, where uh, companies will portray themselves as being uh, ethical and responsible, but, uh, you know, because well, they reduce, reuse, and recycle, but at the same time, their uh, the Colton that's used in people's cell phones is uh, provided by uh, exploited labor. I mean, you know what I mean? I- I'm just wondering well, if, if realistically the, the transformations are going to be more uh, cosmetic than actual. Well, I think uh, a few things to, to your point. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, and uh, I think in order for be able to to you know, achieve change, it, it is about consumer education. Uh, I don't think you know going uh, to the extreme of uh, boycotting product is necessarily the way to go because that does what that does is it puts a whole lot of people into unemployment, uh, and then also puts them in more precarious uh, circumstances, which is why. Uh, when uh, Free the Children started years ago, when we started more than 15 years ago, and we started as an anti-child labor organization, uh, we realized um, that you know it wasn't about exploiting, pro- uh, you know, it wasn't about boycotting products because kids were going to be put into a form of exploitation that would have been more dangerous than, than the factories in which they were working, and that would have been sexual exploitation. Um, so you know, we we we're we're about of an incremental approach, and um, I, I think it's driven by consumer awareness. And I'll be candid with you, I I actually think there are a lot of people who haven't really yet thought about the impact of, of, of what they're buying. If if you're at a store and you look at a, an item of apparel and it strikes you as being so cheap, then chances are someone in the supply chain probably isn't getting a fair shake. And what I would then implore people to do is really think about whether they want to really encourage this kind of practice. And, um, you know, at the same time, I want to be mindful that not everyone has a tremendous amount of disposable income. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's not everyone who can afford um, you know, uh, expensive items. Or so, what we really need to do is we really need to move the needle on um, how to create items that uh, you know that that 
that are produced in a way that's fair and uh, that can be brought to the marketplace in a way that uh, they can they can also move uh, for people uh, within different economic brackets. I, I do think this change is incremental, though, but I really I, I firmly believe this begins with education, and I do think um, educating the populace about uh, these different kinds of issues will bring about will, will bring will bring about change, but it will be in an incremental fashion. Okay, um, and your website is me2we.com? It is, in fact. It is uh, me2we.com, and I also invite you to go to our charitable partners website, uh, freethechildren.com, uh, and uh, we're just really proud uh, to be able to, part- to, to partner with this incredible Canadian charity. It's a Canadian success story, and we work with both young people locally, and we work with communities globally to be able to, to, to make a positive change. Okay. Well, Roxanne Joyal, I, I want to thank you very much for... Um for sharing your, um, for, for explaining uh, your, your organization a little bit of us with us and uh, basically participating in this uh, interesting discussion about uh, you know, international development. It is. It's a great dialogue to have, and I really welcome this very intelligent discussion, and a huge thank you to your listeners as well for listening in. Okay, thank you. And uh, speaking, okay. we've been speaking with Roxanne Joyal. Uh, she's the co-CEO of me to we and she joined us from Nairobi, Kenya. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Joining us now to uh, further explore the discussion of Canada's uh, development NGOs and their impact on the uh, Global South is Nick Berry Shaw. He is co-author with Drew Oyajay of the recently published book Paved with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism. Nick Berry Shaw, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. I, I just wanted to, first of all, get you to uh, explain a bit about your uh, thesis uh, of uh, basically the the non governmental organization uh, and how these uh, entities have uh, uh, historically been, as the title implies, not uh, necessarily assisting the uh, communities that they're hoping to serve. Uh, well, what are your insights yeah. into that situation? I mean, the idea um, behind the the kind of the subtitle of from idealism to imperialism, um, you know, was to suggest that there there was this kind of transformation that went on uh, in the NGO world, um, and most particularly with a kind of subset of uh, NGOs in Canada, which had been um, very radicalized in the 1970s and into the 80s, uh, and that were progressively kind of turned away from that kind of uh, radicalism and a, a kind of more politicized view of development as a struggle for justice and as a struggle for the rights of poor people uh, towards a vision of development as kind of a series of projects um, and a series of kind of self-help initiatives for the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the kind of the general underlying kind of uh, one of the trajectories we talk about in the NGO world. I think um, 
our argument is basically that, that that happened because of the dependence of so many NGOs on funding from donor agencies and from the Canadian government in particular. You know, and because the Canadian government is a part of uh, this kind of uh, you know, global capitalist system and has you know, very uh, particular interests in it in terms of mining, in terms of uh, kind of sweatshop development, in terms of all sorts of multinational corporations that are headquartered here in Canada uh, that have a, a definite interest in kind of keeping the, the poorer parts of the world open for investment and open for exploitation. Um, and so NGOs that depend on government funding, uh, funding from the Canadian government to do their work, uh, you know, kind of inevitably ran into pressures and eventually um, were forced to turn away from a kind of political agenda that was challenging that whole setup and that was challenging uh, the right of, of uh, the Canadian state to, uh, um, you know, uh, to support apartheid, to uh, support what was happening um, in Central America in the 1980s when the U.S. was carrying out its war against the socialist movements in, in that uh, region. And so on, and so that's kind of the general idea there of this transition from idealism to imperialism. Could you maybe give us just a, a, an example or two of uh, of what you're talking about? Yeah, um, one of the examples we talk about most at length in the book is uh, is the example of CUSO. It was um, an NGO, it was one of the biggest NGOs uh, in Canada at the time. Um, CUSO stands for the Canadian University Service overseas, and it was a volunteer-sending organization. They would recruit uh, young people, mostly from university campuses, and send them uh, abroad to work in hospitals or in schools and that sort of thing. Um, that was their initial kind of mission. Um, but as the 1960s kind of progressed in 19, into the 1970s, um, they were kind of transformed by this wave of students who had been radicalized by, uh, you know, what they were seeing happening with the Vietnam War, um, students who started to have a kind of anti-imperialist consciousness, um, and who wanted to change CUSO's way of working and to, to really push it in the direction of solidarity with uh, third world uh, national liberation movements and uh, struggles for, for uh, you know, uh, kind of alternative forms of development national uh, nationalist or socialist kind of models of development um, and so you know basically by the the 19 the end of the 1970s uh, the radicals in the organization were really in control or had a fair bit of sway over how uh, CUSO was doing development work and this had become basically intolerable uh, to the government at the time and in 1979 um, after a number of uh, kind of conflict with uh, with with CETA, uh, Canadian International Development Agency, which was funding uh, to 90% of their budget was funding CUSO. Um, finally, in, in 1979, the government cut off all uh, assistance, all 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 aid that was being given to to CUSO. They shut off funding. They swept out their entire elected board of directors, and they replaced it with people who were you know close to the Liberal Party. And so this organization was completely overhauled, and by 1984 it was uh, uh, pretty much a, a shadow of its former self, and it was really completely transformed. And so that was a kind of you know the most dramatic example of how the government could use its funding power over 
nominally independent organizations, these you know, supposedly non-governmental organizations doing development work in the global south, um, how the government could use that funding power to really impose its politics and to impose its own kind of uh, economic and geopolitical interests on these, on these groups. I, I was just speaking with uh, an individual who's uh, wor- working with uh, Me to We, which uh, in turn is a, a social enterprise, uh, and 50% of what uh, they raise through a, a system of ethical uh, consumption and ethical uh, business practices, corporate social responsibility, uh, but they devote about 50% of their funds to a group called Free the Children, which in turn, uh, they, they emphasize partnership at the local level, at the grassroots level yeah. with communities. Um, and, and, you know, she talked about uh, things, how that uh, involves, uh, you know, support for, for education, uh, water and sanitation systems, uh, alternative income and food security. And they're doing all of this in partnership with these uh, local elements. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, what uh, what would be problematic about uh, an entity that works in that way. This is the story of almost any NGO. You speak to any 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 representative of NGO, you'll hear similar things. We work in partnership with local people. We're providing essential services. We're providing food. We're providing health care. We're providing you know clean water, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're all kind of things you just you can't really argue with. I mean, right? Like, they're just uh, undeniably kind of good things on on the surface of it, you know? Um, the problem I have with, with you know, from what I little, I, I read up a bit about the Me to We initiative and uh, groups like Free the Children, what they're doing is I feel that they really do violence uh, to the idea of, of you know, how, how serious poverty is, right? So they do violence to the uh, people's intelligence when they tell them that, you know, the poor are kind of one goat away from getting out of poverty, you know, or they're just one $10 loan away from being able to start their own business and kind of uh, make it out of the, out of the hole, you know, as if, as if the, the kind of the barrier to getting out of poverty was so low, right, that anyone and any tiny minor contribution uh, would, would change things radically. Right, and and that that's what I feel like is the most uh, kind of insidious side of of what these groups are doing is is they're saying, you know, we can change things without really changing things, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can participate in this world changing event without lifting a finger, right? Mm-hmm. And and so we kind of erase the whole uh, uh, the whole side. Uh, of the problem of poverty, which is structural, right? We lose sight of the idea that poverty is not just people lacking some particular thing, but that poverty is something that is produced by social relations, you know, something that is produced in unequal power relations in society, both within poor countries and internationally in relations between rich countries and poor countries. You know, and when we lose sight of that, and we start acting like, you know, we just need a new business model to kind of remedy these problems, uh, I, I think we're really leading people down the garden path. So, so corporate re- social responsibility, that, that's not really going to unlock this, uh, this structural programs, as you, you call them, or the structural power dimensions of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing like, 
uh, I mean, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is, um, you know, you're, t- you're doing kind of projects like you're teaching a peasant how to farm, you know, uh, teacher teaching them, trying to teach them a better farming method, uh, you know, while they're eking out a living on the side of a, a you know, mountainside, right? The tiny plot on the side of a mountain, right? Now, is that the problem, or is it the problem that that peasant was kicked off uh, much more fertile and arable land, uh, you know, 10 years ago by the local landlord who has the, the, you know, the local police backing him up, and they've been forced to, to farm this really marginal land, right? You know, so you can, you can attack it as a, as a technical problem, right, of like, okay, this is the distribution of wealth, this is the distribution of political power, and we're not going to question that. And we're just going to try to help these people kind of uh, scramble to, to, to make ends meet. And maybe you can help a few of them do it a little better. But if you haven't addressed that imbalance of political power, uh, that imbalance of uh, that, that maldistribution of wealth that it's related to, you're not going to change much, you know? Um, and, and, and so that's the one side. It's like you're not really attacking what I see as the root of the problem over there. And... More importantly, um, these kinds of initiatives, when they say we can change everything just by changing our consumption habits, it means that we're not really attacking the root of the problem uh, here as well, because because Canada is part of the problem uh, mm-hmm. in this case. Um, you know, when we have Canadian mining corporations uh, running around all around the globe, uh, you know, displacing indigenous peoples and peasants from their land, uh, opening up these huge open pit mining operations. Uh, polluting the, the, the water sources in the local area, and in many cases hiring uh, hiring thugs and hiring local police, uh, you know, to to mete out repression against anyone who tries to stand up to these projects. I mean, you know, Canada is deeply involved in that, right? And so we have a responsibility, uh, a political responsibility, much more than a kind of consumer responsibility, uh, to really to fight that um, and to organize politically to try to take that on. And so I think that's. The, the, the side of the me to we thing that really bothers me the most is it, it really drains out any kind of sense of political responsibility that Canadians have. Um, it drains out any kind of sense that, you know, it's not just our consumption habits that matter, but it's our actions as citizens and as, uh, you know, as human beings. So as Canadians, uh, like uh, what would be your re- recommendation for what people should do who who genuinely and earnestly wish to assist these um, you know these other communities? Um, I mean, I think the main thing is uh, to inform yourself. That that's really the first step is to take this problem seriously, because I think what need to we and other kinds of uh, kind of social enterprise initiatives are selling uh, is this idea that, that we can change things without really putting much effort into it. And I think that's, that's a terrible deception, you know. That's a terrible illusion. And so people, if you really want to try to help other people, you know, you have to think at the very least that the problems over there are just as complicated as the problems over here, you know. And just as we wouldn't accept, you know, some Haitian coming over here and telling us how to run our politics, I don't think anyone should expect to be able to go over to Haiti and tell Haitians how to run things, you know? And so we should, we should, we should kind of extend that basic uh, kind of uh, assumption of equality and, and the, the, you know, accept the seriousness of the problem and try to inform ourselves about it. 
okay. then from there try to try to support you know seek out groups that are actually struggling against these root causes and aren't just merely putting a band-aid on the problem um, so yeah so I would encourage people to you know like if you're really interested to you know first kind of inform yourselves a little more deeply about uh, any kind of particular situation you're interested in and and to to go to the book's website at um, pavedwithgoodintentions.ca and check out the list of organizations that are active, see if there's one in your area, and try to get involved. We've been speaking with Nick Barry Shaw, who is the co-author of the book Paved with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism. Thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Eve Engler is among the most prominent critics of Canadian foreign policy, described as by the Georgia Strait as Canada's version of Noam Chomsky. The former vice president of Concordia University Student Union is the author of seven books, including Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt, Canada and Israel, Building Apartheid, The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, and his most recent, The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy. He joins us by phone from Ottawa. Thanks for joining us, Eve. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're looking at the subject of, um, you know, how uh, Canada uh, intervenes in the Global South with assistance projects. And, um, you know, we of course, there there is uh, a lot of uh, poverty and, and destitution uh, throughout the Global South. Uh, I'm going to, I guess, maybe start by just ask, asking what might be a, a simple-minded question, but... Uh, well, what you say are the, the major factors that uh, are the, at the root of uh, what we see as, as third world poverty? Uh, why, why, why is it out there? Well, I mean, there's obviously many different reasons, but I think a central one or one that is of central importance, at least to Canadians, is that um, there is a, a, a you know power relations and a system of, of uh, domination in global affairs. Uh, whereby um, a handful of countries, uh, wealthy capitalist countries, uh, Canada being one of them, have um, have uh, to uh, a certain extent, or in different different places, it's, always, it's slightly different, but to a large extent, in many places, have sort of created the conditions of poverty. And um, and obviously, people are probably somewhat familiar with the role the U.S. has played in overthrowing governments and going to war and. Uh, um, all around the world uh, to to advance their um, their sort of corporate and geopolitical interests, but uh, the Canadian government and Canadian corporations have been uh, heavily involved in that. Um, you know, really going back uh, uh, over a century to uh, to Canada's relations with the British Empire in the late 1800s and and right up until today um, with relations with the uh, with the American uh, Empire and uh, and um, so I think that. That's uh, when it comes to discussing um, uh, you know, what we should do in terms of uh, uh, alleviating poverty around the world. It's um, it's uh, it's crucial to to uh, look at and to uh, oppose or expose and oppose the role that uh, our government uh, uh, institutions, this country, corporations, most most notably, have played and continue to play in. Uh, in, uh, in creating conditions of uh, impoverishment um, um, uh, in much of the world. Mm. 
Now, um, I, I know that when it comes to the issue of, uh, of foreign aid, and I know that figures like Stephen Lewis uh, come to mind, and he certainly... Uh, been uh, railing against how uh, Canada has uh, needs to increase its aid commitments uh, and um, you know we need more aid for anti like well how <clears throat> aid for antiretroviral drugs uh, which can save lives uh, uh, and uh, you know diseases you know and, and, and other, other sorts of uh, examples like that uh, um, is is I mean is aid uh, in essence a bad thing? Certainly not in essence. I think in, in, in essence, in theory, it's a, it's a good thing. It's, 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 it's a, the idea that those who have uh, more, if you like, uh, in the case of um, you know, Canada obviously has more sort of uh, material wealth than almost every country in the world. Um, and, uh, and there's obviously many countries in this world that have um, incredi- incredibly limited amounts of, um, of uh, wealth in terms of certainly in terms of money. Often they have you know, natural resources and that, that, that Certain types of wealth, and obviously, you know, cultural and and other other forms of what you could call wealth. But but in terms of um, uh, many forms of wealth, that Canada has more and and should share. And at one level, that's that's all that aid is. That's sort of I think what most people sort of see aid as is you know, hey, we have more, uh, they have less, and we should uh, help them out. Um, that's a idealized uh, vision that has very little relation to. Reality in terms of practical reality, how it works in the here and now, and in fact, um, certainly, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Canadian aid for um, um, you know uh, AIDS drugs can be uh, uh, you know a, a positive thing for many people. Uh, you know, Canadian aid to to help build a sanitation system somewhere can be can be a positive thing, uh, and you know, there's many other examples. But in in much of or most of what Canadian aid, aid is about is, in fact, advancing uh, Canadian geopolitical interests and Canadian corporate interests. And there's a long history. The actual the starting of Canadian aid um, goes back to something called the Colombo Plan in 19, uh, 1950. And the basic goal of the Colombo Plan was the in 1949, China had had its revolution, uh, was moving, uh, breaking away from from outside colonial domination, and there was a fear that um, India, uh, Pakistan's South Asian countries and some Eastern Asian countries were going to really fully break away from British, mainly British uh, domination. And they were trying to keep those countries in the Western fold. And the point of the aid program, the Colombo Plan, this is very said very explicitly by Lester Pearson, who was Canadian external minister at the time, was um, to to uh, to keep those countries uh, within the Western fold to 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 uh, uh, avoid the, them going, you know, the communist uh, threat that they would go in a communist direction, and basically to work with the elites, mainly in India, um, to to keep them sort of close to to London, keep them close to to Ottawa, and oriented towards you know Washington, uh, and so that was the that was the main point of beginning Canadian aid, and that and it continues into today where where Canadian aid is. Primarily uh, a geopolitical tool of, of influence within other societies. Uh, you see that right now with Canadian uh, aid to the Palestinian Authority, where there's tens of millions of dollars going into supporting a Palestinian Authority that doesn't have, doesn't have no longer has an electoral mandate, is uh, 
is being contested increasingly by uh, popular opposition because of its compliance in the face of ongoing Israeli uh, settlement building. Um, and so we're trying to support the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority is, is uh, you know, sort of working fairly closely with Israel. Um, you see that um, uh, in other examples, in the case of the 2004 coup in, in Haiti, a huge amount of Canadian aid flowed into Haiti largely to to uh, support the uh, the dictatorship that was put in power after the coup. Uh, uh, the main one of the main uh, places that Canada sends aid over the past ten years is is the places where Canada sent troops or where the U.S. has sent troops. So huge amounts of aid going to Afghanistan, uh, to Haiti uh, after the American invasion, to Iraq, which is largely due to uh, to support those uh, those invasions. Um, so it's a so it's a geopolitical tool, and then secondarily, it's a tool of um, of advancing corporate interests and there's innumerable different examples of that from something like CETA Inc., the Canadian International Development Agency's uh, um, uh, subsidy program, direct subsidy program to to corporations, which took place for about 25 years where they a couple hundred million dollars in aid uh, to things like Tide Aid uh, and to things today where you know, the Conservative government has, um, has really deepened the ties between the Canadian mining sector and, uh, and CETA very in explicitly saying that the, the point, uh, Bevoda, the former minister of CETA, saying explicitly that the point uh, that they, you know, going to the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada meeting, the, the main uh, meeting of the mining executives and saying, we're, we're, we see what you're doing as development and we want to help you out, uh, Bevoda saying that. Um, so, so in we have to go beyond the terminology. Uh, the politicians refer to it as aid. Most people, when they hear the term aid, uh, they think, oh, you know, we have more. We should, uh, we should help those with less. Um, in practice, uh, it's, it's very often very far from, from what, uh, what most people uh, think that, uh, you know, the term aid implies. Hmm. Um, do you, uh, <clears throat> can you, one, draw a distinction when we're talking about non-governmental organizations in terms of their commitments abroad? Most NGOs in this country are quite heavily dependent upon um, um, CETA. No longer, there is no longer CETA now. It's been collapsed into foreign affairs, uh, but are dependent upon Canadian aid uh, funding. And so their priorities and their way of their way of operating is uh, is heavily influenced by the the uh, political objectives of of Canadian Canadian aid, and um, and uh, I think that the, you, the most obvious way you see that is the the NGOs are not oriented uh, are oriented in a very uh, charity. Um, uh, charitable kind of way. They, they are, the, the idea is you're going to solve poverty through, uh, you know, building um, a school in in, uh, in Guatemala. You're going to solve par- poverty by sort of uh, bringing stuff there, rather than uh, challenging the the political uh, decisions that are being made in in this country that are contributing to the poverty there. And obviously, the Canadian government uh, doesn't have a, a big interest in funding uh, uh, groups that are challenging its poverty, uh, challenging its po- policies. Um, so, so Canadian aid agencies generally stay away from uh, um, organizations that do too much criticism of, of Canadian aid or Canadian foreign policy in general. So, are you saying that it comes down to a choice between charity and solidarity? 
I wouldn't say it's a, you know it's not a simple it's not a simple uh, choice. It's not an either or. Uh, it certainly sh- it shouldn't be an either or, uh, um, but it often is pretty close to an either or. So That's for the it, reality. The reality is, and and you know charity charitable status. Most NGOs have charitable status, and charitable status to get charitable status, which means ability to write a, a, a tax. Uh, receipt to donors, which is very important because it becomes essentially a subsidy. You know, when I give, if I give a hundred bucks to a group, I get uh, you know uh, a tax credit of you know, depends on your tax bracket from 20 to 40 percent of that money comes back to you as the individual donor. Um, uh, the the charitable status is dependent upon organizations um, doing uh, less than 10 percent of political work. Of their overarching uh, uh, mandate, so they, it, it heavily constrains um, their ability to engage in, in, in political action. Uh, um, just having the charitable status—that's the, the sort of nature of, of, of that. Um, that's one thing, and then, um, uh, and obviously, again, the, what the, what CEDAs will, what the Canadian aid is willing to fund, uh, impacts that. Um, so, ideally, you can um, you can build. Uh, uh, political movements or, or, or organizations that can do a combination of meeting individuals' short-term needs in a certain community, an impoverished community, where you know, let's say um, uh, there's some Canadian mine in Guatemala, and it's it's displacing the community, and you can raise you know ten, twenty thousand uh, dollars in Canada to uh, you know set up a a you know, I don't want to say a short-term uh, 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 School, so so the community that's just been displaced by the Canadian mine, um, that their kids can continue to to be educated, um, alongside a broader uh, political campaign of 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 challenging the role of the Canadian mining company in the community in Guatemala, and alongside a, a bigger campaign that challenges the policies. Uh, in this country, of, of the Toronto Stock Exchange, of of the federal government, that enable Canadian mining companies to go and and displace communities in Guatemala. Um, so, you know, in an ideal scenario, a, fun, a highly uh, functioning political or, you know, organization can be doing a combination of that political work and that and that um, you know sort of charitable work, if you like. Um, but in I think in, in in and there there are some institutions that are able to pull off. Pull that off, but for the most part, it it, it is an either or. And, we'll, and what you see in practice is that most of the NGO world is focused not on the political, on the political uh, arena, not on the the policies that the Canadian government um, uh, pursues that create the poverty, but they're they are focused on alleviating the poverty and ignoring the bigger political questions. Eve Engler, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing those with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. And I've been speaking with Eve Angler, who is the uh, author of the recently released The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at 
gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.